Good morning, church. So good to be with you. It doesn't take but this much room, and somehow I can lose a piece of paper. Yep. Anyway, I, uh, I spoke last year here at this church, and uh, this same time, and I received a text message a couple of months ago, and it said, we'd love to have you speak on the first Sunday of the, month, of the year this year under one condition. Anybody know what that condition is? That I would not come up here and put a significant kiss upon the lips of my bride. Anybody remember that? It was significant. You notice she didn't introduce me. She's not even in, in the room right now. So she guaranteed that. Um, but kids in particular, young boys, there's going to be a time where most likely you're going to stand in front of a congregation and the pastor's going to say, you may now kiss your bride. And I gave, on that day, some six, 17 years ago, I gave my wife a peck, just a quick kiss. And the marriage began in disappointment. <laughs> That's where we started. And you know, I know all spouses, we disappoint one another. So 16 years ago, which would have been last year, I tried in a sense, make up for that and that didn't really work either, but, you know, that's, that's how it goes. Uh, disappointment. It happens in marriage. It happens amongst ourselves when it comes to the church. And in this church, and really in any church, we don't want disappointment to lead to division. And the piece of paper I lost was the ECC membership deal where you sign back up, raise your hand if you... They, every year, they ask you to, hey, we want you to, in a sense, say, yes, I want to be a member this year, too. And I like it because it basically, on that document, and you're not going to see it in your bulletin. They, got, they didn't put it in there this week. But it basically tells you a little bit about who we are, what we believe, and how we should behave. Now, I wanted to read from that piece of paper. It's gone because I want to highlight, I wanted to highlight a couple, so I'll do it the best I can. Number one, uh, and there was a lot on there, but... One is honor those in leadership. I think it's important, lay person to lay person, that we honor those that are in leadership. It's biblical. Matter of fact, the Bible said submit to those that are in leadership in the same way that we are called to submit to one another. That's in the book of Ephesians. So we submit to each other. In particular, yes, we submit to our pastor, not because Pastor Chris is great. He is, but because our God is great, because the Bible says we do it to uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's why we do it. Now, what do, oh, there it is. How about that? Thank you, brother. So that's, uh, that's the first thing. I also want you to know that the way we bring our pastor joy, his call is to communicate truth. And the way we bring him joy is then we do the work that God has called us to within these walls and then outside of these walls to share about our great God. That's how we can honor our pastor and encourage him. Now, another one I wanted to mention, I'll just mention three here, was communicating clearly, completely, and directly when I disagree or I have concerns. Disagreements happen. It's just part of the world that we live in. And dealing with those effectively keeps us from division. This is a preemptive strike against division. It really is. That's why uh, they do this. 
And that means we look at Matthew 18 if we're having disagreements. We see God's prescription. We pray over it, and then we decide by God's spirit how to move forward. And then the third one, I think the way we uh, combat from this actually happening is you and I realize we are capable of this. And so we refuse to engage in quarreling, gossip, unwholesome talk, slanderous conversation, or divisive behavior. We choose to build up rather than to push down. There's a great section of scripture in 2 Peter. Basically gives you the gospel message. And it says in there three times, remind, refresh, and remember. So much of following God is simply remembering who we are, remembering what truth is and what God calls us to because as we remind ourselves, and of course, we're able to live that out more effectively. So I love what has been put together there. And now I'm going to move into my message, so pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this church. Thank you for the unity in this church, and we pray for an outstanding year ahead to do your good work. Refine us like gold, guide and direct us. And now, Lord Jesus, as we look to your word, uh, I pray that my confidence would be in you. I pray that I would not sway from your truth, and I pray uh, that we would just open our hearts and minds to hear from you. My words mean nothing unless you take them and use them. So come, Holy Spirit, come and be here with us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was teaching my first grade classroom, my first grade teacher, and I had, this was 10 years ago, had about 23 kids in front of me. We've entered into the wonderful world of math, and the phone rings. Now, kids, this is when the phones were connected to walls, okay? I didn't have a cell phone, and so the phone rings. I have to walk away from my classroom, in a sense, grab that phone off of the wall. I say, hello, this is Mr. Scott, and it was my wife, Jennifer, the community life director here at this church. And she said, honey, you have got to come home right now. There's an animal in our fireplace. I said, honey, remain calm. That wasn't a good idea, but I, I said it. <laughs> but then I went on with an action plan like a good man, right? We've we got a plan. Here's what we'll do. So I said, honey, why don't you call up our brother-in-law, Rick, or our brother-in-law, Dan? They're closer by. They don't have 23 kids in front of them. I'm sure they can come over and help. She said, okay. She hung up the phone. I went back to teaching my kids. Five minutes later, drling. Phone rings. I go over there. I grab the phone. Hello, this is Mr. Scott. It's my wife again, and she remains frantic. She says, honey, I called our brother-in-law, Dan. He can't come over. I called our brother-in-law, Rick. He can't come over. I called animal control, and they can come over right now and get that animal out of the fireplace for $300. I said, honey, I'll be right home. <laughs> I mean, come on. $300? And so I called up for the first time in my career, my principal, and I said, I have a family issue, a financial issue, <laughs> and I need, I need you to come take over my classroom. And so luckily it was near the end of the day. She was able to do that, and I headed off to home. I went through the garage, through the front entryway, into the room where the fireplace was. Now, we have a fireplace that has those glass doors. So you think of a closet doors. You know, you, you go like grab onto the knob, and you push it, and it opens in the middle. Same idea, except glass doors. 
And so I go over there and I look into the fireplace and kids, what did I see? Well, you'll find out. That was my son. Oh yeah, he knows. Okay. Darn it, I forgot he was here. <laughs> Noah, that's it, buddy. You're done. Okay. Gee whiz. Okay, so anyway, yeah, there's a squirrel in the fireplace. Actually, I'm telling you what, the squirrel was not there at the time, okay? So I looked in there, and there was nothing in there. So I said, well, I'm going to have to smoke this thing out. And so I got everything lined up for a fire. I basically opened the doors, got stuff in there, shut the doors back and forth. I got the whole fire built, uh, lit the fire. Smoke's going up through the chimney, and I'm thinking, this is only a matter of minutes, Five minutes go by, nothing. Ten minutes, nothing. Fifteen minutes, nothing is happening. So I go, okay, however this animal got into my fireplace, it got out of the fireplace. But I'm going to make sure this never happens again. And so I go to the hardware store, pick up some wire meshing stuff to put over the top of my chimney. I go home, get up on the roof, and I'm working on that, becoming irritated rather quickly. And then waves crashing off of the walls of my kitchen, crashing off of the walls in the room where the fireplace is, crashing right up through the chimney. Children, do you know what those waves were? Good job, Noah. <laughs> Parents, do you know what those waves were? Sound waves. Sound waves, children coming from? Parents coming from? My wife, <laughs> my wife, screaming, boom, right up, all the way through the fireplace, I can hear it. And so I jump into action being the man that I am. I run down this slanted roof, catch too much speed, realize I'm not going to be able to stop, <laughs> jump off of the roof, hit the top of the ladder, and do a double flip landing it. You know that didn't happen, yes, okay. But anyway, I go through the garage into the front entryway and into the room, and there it is. What was it, Noah? It was a gray squirrel. You want to see it over here? Okay, and it's up on the glass doors. I don't know how it's on the glass doors. I mean, squirrels, they, they got the bark and at least some crevices there or something to grab onto. This is just purely flat, but... Boom, it's on there, and it's crawling across, trying to dig its way out from one side. Then it would hook back and go the other way, crawling over, trying to dig to get into my house. And I think, if that thing gets its claws right in the middle where those two doors connect and it pulls, I'm going to be going nose to nose with the squirrel. <laughs> and so I panic. I'm starting to feel like my wife. So I got this go-to buddy. He loves to take care of cars. He loves to take care of his house. He loves to hunt. He loves to fish. He loves to read in his spare time magazines that are all about bullets. Okay? Did you know that? Can you picture what this guy's like? So I call him up. He loves Jesus. I said, brother, you know, what am I going to do? I'm scared now that this squirrel's going to get into my house. He said, well, you know what I'd do is I'd just open up those doors just a little bit, just enough to get the barrel of my pellet gun in there. <laughs> Wait for that thing to come into line. Fire. One word came to my mind. Ricochet. 
not going to do it. So then I said, well, you got any other ideas? He said, well, there's maybe just one more thing you can do. What I'd do is I'd open up those doors just a little bit, just enough for the head of that squirrel to come through. <laughs> Slam them shut. I tell you what, people fail us, don't they? They fail us. I said, catch you later. Good chatting with you. And at that moment, I thought, you know what? Maybe my wife was right some two, three hours earlier. Now, before I come back to that, I want you to notice what happened in that story. There was a moment where everything changed, and it came in the second phone call when my wife said to me, it's going to cost you something. And the minute she said, it's going to cost you something, I jumped into action. And that's what I want to talk about today, the cost of following Jesus Christ. You see, one of the things that I think has hurt the church when we think of the church at large is maybe we haven't always communicated this clearly, and then people don't jump into action and get involved. I think the evil one finds tremendous joy when people think they're okay when maybe they're not. Now, we are not the judges of that. Our job, according to Scripture, is to proclaim the gospel clearly, as we should, full of grace seasoned with salt. And in order to do that, we must proclaim the cost. And when it comes to the cost of following Jesus, the best thing to do is to look at the very words of Jesus himself. And that's what we're going to do today. And so I'd like you, if you've got Bibles, uh, turn to Luke chapter 18, 18 through 30. I'll also have it up here on the screen. And it says here, a certain ruler asked him, rich young ruler, asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That Jesus is basically saying, oh, you, you're saying I'm God because only God is good. But then Jesus goes on to say, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. So here's the progression. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus basically says, follow the commandments. And then the rich young ruler says, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Now, I don't know for sure what's going on inside the mind of this rich young ruler. But let's just talk about the commandments and what we know from Scripture and what is true about those. First of all, we know that the Ten Commandments make you and I realize we are sinners and we can't live up to it. That in turn, the Scripture says, points us to the cross where Christ paid the price that we couldn't pay. Now, it doesn't stop there. In addition to that, the very words of Jesus himself, he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. In the book of Romans, it says this, do we nullify the law by faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So we realize we're forgiven of our sins, and then we seek to live the way that God calls us to live. If we just say, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sins, and leave it at that and don't seek to live for him, we've received the grace of God in vain. It's not yielding the desired purpose, which is for God to do a mighty work in our life and make us into a holy person we could never be on our own. 
That's a clear understanding of what the commandments do. Now, Jesus doesn't even go there. Jesus just dives right into the heart of the matter with this rich young ruler who says, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus said this then. This is verse 22 now. He said, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Well, when the rich young ruler heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and then in the book of Mark, when you read this, it says at this point, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He loved him and he came with the strong word. Do you know you're loving people when you explain to them the cost? You're loving them. You're leading them to where they can embrace a life that is truly life. Well, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. For those of you taking notes, this is your first note. Jesus calls us to put him before all things. That's what he's saying to this rich young ruler. I come before all your money and anything your money can buy. Now, Jesus is using something in this section of scripture called hyperbole exaggeration because he says how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God indeed it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle kids if you've ever seen the eye of a needle you got a needle then you got a little hole at the top you stick that piece of thread through there and you tie it up and then you can sew well a camel going through the eye of a needle impossible Jesus so does that mean it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God I don't think so I think what Jesus is saying here is it's really hard. Be careful. For the money is the root of all sorts of evil. In addition to that, you've got that parable of the sower, where the sower goes out to sow the seeds, which is the word of God. And it says that some people get excited about it. And they start down that path. Something happens, but then they don't continue. And why don't they continue? The deceitfulness of wealth. Money can make us confident in ourselves, and our confidence must be in God. And all that we have is his. Well, those that were listening to this conversation, the rich young ruler and Jesus, they hear this, they realize the gravity of it, and they say, this is verse 21 now, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Now, let me tell you what it's not saying. It's not saying it's impossible to give it all up for God. It's not saying that. And I'll explain that in a second. What it is saying is when you choose to give it all up for God, that he then empowers you to live in a way that you never could on your own. You're like the apple in his hand that nobody can snatch away. Nothing can separate you from his love. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You can escape all the corruption in this world caused by evil desires. These are encouraging words. What Jesus is saying is, I got you. You fall down, I'll pick you up. That's what he's saying. Now, what 
isn't he saying, or how do we know he isn't saying it's impossible to give it all up for him? It's because of what Peter said. Peter said, we have left all we had to follow you. Peter's saying, we've done what the rich young ruler seems unwilling to do. What we know about the rich young ruler is he went away sad. Jesus didn't run after him saying, just kidding. And then when Peter says, hey, we've done it. We've left all we had to follow you. Jesus affirms him. He doesn't say, get behind me, Satan, or rebuke him like he does in other times. He affirms him. He says, I tell you the truth. This is verse 29 now. I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Notice that part at the end. You will receive many times as much in this age. Kids, do you know in the book of Mark it says you'll receive 100 times more in this age. Your life will be 100 times better when you give it all to God. Now, how can that be when somebody gets cancer at a young age and then dies? How can that be? And I don't for a second begin to belittle all the pain that is involved with that. Here's how, though. Because you go through that with the power that God provides as opposed to with your own strength. That's 100 times better. And then you know that no matter what happens here on this earth, ultimately, all will be made perfect when we are with him in glory, eternal life. Listen to what John Stott says in his book called Basic Christianity. He kind of pulls this together when it comes to what Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler. He says this, Now there can be no following without a previous forsaking. To follow Christ is to renounce all lesser loyalties. In the days when he lived among men on earth, this meant a literal abandonment of home and work. Simon and Andrew left their nets and followed him. James and John left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Matthew, who heard Christ's call while he was sitting in, at the tax office, left everything, rose, and followed him. Today, in principle... The call of the Lord Jesus has not changed. He still says, follow me, and adds, whoever of, you does, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In practice, however, this does not mean for the majority of Christians a physical departure from their home or their job. It implies rather an inner surrender of both and a refusal to allow either family or ambition to occupy first place in our lives. Notice that phrase. Who, this is near the top. Whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Those are the words of Jesus. Luke chapter 14. Large crowds are traveling with Jesus. He's popular. Can you imagine the crowd behind Jesus? Maybe they're shouting out their allegiances and chanting his name, Jesus, Jesus. Here he is at the height of popularity. He could say anything that he wanted to. And he brings a very strong challenge. Now, we can wonder why. Why, why does Jesus choose to do that at that moment? Well, maybe he knows that in two and a half, three years, they're not going to be chanting Jesus, Jesus anymore. They're going to be chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And he wants to prepare his people for the road ahead. That is not always easy. 
but it's always better. And so this is what Jesus says at this moment. He turns to them and he says, this is verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This is the second thing in your notes because this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus calls us to put him before all people. Children, let me be clear. You are not called to hate your father and mother. Jesus is using hyperbole here, exaggeration to drive home a point in a very strong way. Love less would be the way to say it there. Love less your mother, father, brother, sister, wife, children, yes, even your own life. Husbands, you want to love your wife better? Put God first. He'll show you how. Children, you want to obey your parents and love them better and love your brothers or your sisters in your home? Put God first. He'll show you how. There's another word in there I want to talk about it. You see it two times. The word is disciple. And I just want you to know that the word disciple and Christian are synonymous. And the reason we know that is because in the book of Acts, in the town of Antioch, they started calling disciples Christians. So when you hear this, and it says, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, you can also say, cannot be a Christian. Now, right after this, Jesus says, count the cost. And he gives a couple of examples about counting that cost. So, kids, I want you to imagine you are older now. You are in uh, a position where you can buy a house, and you decide that you're going to buy a house right next door to your parents. Yes. Wouldn't that be awesome, parents? Maybe a, few house, maybe a few houses away or something. But anyway, so you're going to buy this house, all right? And you got your money together, and you say, yeah, let's do it. And so you, you buy the materials. You hire people to start building this house. You get halfway done with the house, and all of a sudden you realize, whoa, I'm out of money. And I don't have enough material to finish the house and hire someone to do the work to finish that house. And right after an example like this, Jesus said, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. What Jesus is saying is you, you first count the cost and you say, do I have, do I really want this? Am I really willing to give it all up for God? Because Christianity isn't a sprint. It's not about moments in time. They matter. Christianity is a marathon. And so you think about it before you really do it. He gives another example. Kids, imagine you're in charge of an army of 10,000. You're going against an army of 20,000. You'd look at your army of 10,000 before you go into this war, and you'd say, hmm, are, do, are my people courageous? Are they tough? Uh, what's the terrain like? Do we know the terrain better for some sneak attacks? Do we have more powerful weapon, weaponry? And if the answer is yes to some of those things, you feel like you can win, you'd go into the battle. But if you don't think you can win, you'd get on a horse with a white flag and you'd ride out to the middle of that battlefield waving that white flag. You'd meet the guy of the other army and you'd figure out terms of peace and you would not enter into war. 
Now, right after Jesus gives this type of example, he says this, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Wow. Cannot be a Christian. The, the next one in your notes is Jesus calls us to give up everything. To enter into the war, you've got to be ready to give up your life. Give up all that you have. And that's why he wants us to think about it because it's a big deal. Now listen to what John Stott says in his book, Basic Christianity here. He says this, the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their conveniences. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Strong words. One more section of scripture. Uh, you got it in your notes there, and I'm just going to tell it to you. It comes from Luke chapter 10. An expert in the law comes up to Jesus, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There you've got the question again. Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the man says, this expert in the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did not say, no, you can't do that. No, I'll take 75%. Jesus said to this guy when he responded that way, he said, do this and you will live. Give me all that you are. Now, I want to make sure as I share this message that there's not confusion on two things. The first one is you can't confuse all with perfection. Matter of fact, I would suggest to you when we talk in that way, as if to make them synonymous, we cause confusion in people's understanding of the gospel. All and perfection are not the same thing. Here's how I'll explain it to you. Imagine you're in a basketball game. Okay? You're going to dribble and double dribble. You're going to travel. You're going to miss shots. You're going to push yourself really hard, and then you're going to let up and maybe not push yourself as hard as you should have at different times. Jesus talks about us being on the narrow road. Okay? You're on the narrow road that leads to life. You're going to sin. Anyone who claims to be without sin is a liar and doesn't live by the truth. And as you're on that narrow road, sin will get the best of you. You know, I'm thinking about my relationship with my wife right now, whom I love and I am a blessed man, but we have moments where we go, here we are again. Same conversation, okay? Because 
there we went into sin again. And we figured out and we move on. But the point is, we're going to sin. It's like the basketball game. Now, you're in the game. You get better at it. You start to double dribble less. You learn more about the game. You start to make some more shots. Oh, but you still let up at times, and you're still going to double dribble or travel or make those mistakes. And it's the same as that narrow road that leads to life. But here's what we've got to bank on. If you choose to give it all up to God, he promises to refine you like gold. He promises to empower you so that you can live in a way that you could never live on your own. You see, your holiness and your righteous life that God calls you to, it's all because of what God does in your life, and that's why he receives the glory. So all doesn't mean perfection. Now, the second thing I want to make sure there's no confusion on is that you cannot earn your salvation. You are saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not by works lest any man should boast. Not enough good deeds you ever can do or ever could do to save yourself. It is because of what Christ did on the cross that makes it possible. Let's take a look at um, a little example here. Here up on top, it says God and man. That's Adam and Eve up there. Okay, they're living in paradise. Everything is perfect. God's the master, they're the slave. He's the king, they're the servant. And then you know what happens. They eat from the tree of good and evil. Sin enters the world. So there's sin. You see how you fell down, and there you are stuck on the ledge. You have no way to save yourself. Now, there might be some rock climbers in here saying, oh, yeah, I could. No, you can't. This is my analogy, okay? So <laughs> there you are. You're not looking too good either. I didn't draw that, but that, I like that. So there you are, dead in your sin, no way to be back in a right relationship with God. Jesus comes, pays the price you could never pay. So here's the ladder. That's Jesus. He saves you by his grace. Now, wouldn't it be foolishness to say, Jesus, thank you for saving me from my sins. I think I'll stay on the ledge. I don't think I'll go back up and put you in charge of my life. I'll keep charge of my life. He died so that you could give your life back to him. And that's God on top, man on the bottom. Now, you're not going to taste that in perfection here on this earth. You taste it in part. And then one day, you'll know it in its full when you're with him in glory. There's a great verse in the book of Jude, small little book. And it says this, some people use the grace of God as a license for immorality. Saved by grace, live the way I want. Or how about this, using the grace of God as a license for mediocrity, for casual, nominal Christianity. We don't want that to be so in the church. This is what John Stott says. He says, the astonishing idea in, is current in some circles today that we can enjoy the benefits of Christ's salvation without accepting the challenge of his sovereign lordship. Such an unbalanced notion is not to be found in the New Testament. Jesus is Lord is the earliest known formulation of the creed of Christians. So what's the application? Let me give you three things to think about. First of all, in a room this size... With this many people, maybe you're a person that says, you know what, I haven't really counted the cost. 
And I would say, go there. Think about it. Talk to Pastor Chris. Talk to me. I'd love to chat about it. People on the prayer team would love to chat about it. Think about somebody you know and talk about it. And think about it. And then my hope is that you'd make a decision to give it all up to God, and you will find yourself on an incredible ride. For others of you, maybe what you need to hear is, I've kind of let up a bit. I know I've needed that word before. I've kind of let up a bit, choosing the convenient rather than the uncomfortable, and you need to push yourself. Start with prayer and go to a conversation and basically just say, God, what do you want me to do? How can I live more vibrantly for you? And as you pray and talk to others and you seek him with an open heart, I guarantee he'll direct you. And then you'll find yourself in uncomfortable spots at times. But it's beautiful. It's always better, never easier. uh, The third one, just keep showing up. Maybe some of you need to hear that. Just keep showing up. It can be frustrating sometimes living the Christian life. And it's hard. I know when it comes to Bible study, sometimes I just simply don't want to go. But every time we show up, we just show up to serve. We show up uh, to learn about the word. We show up to pray and sing. You show up to church. Every time you do it, it's just another opportunity for God to say, Here's what I got for you. Here's what I want to teach you today. And then you move forward more effectively for him. Well, I told you that my wife was probably right, that I should call up animal control, that she made the right call three hours ago. And so I was becoming a little concerned here, so I chose to call up animal control, same guy she had talked to earlier. And sure enough, his daughter was having a birthday party that night. And so he said, well, I can come over in two hours. I said, all right, what about the price? Can we bring it down a little bit? He said, no. And so (laughs) we had our little conversation. Five minutes or whatever goes by, and I get off the phone, and I notice I'm not hearing anything. So I go over. By this time, it's dark. It was during the winter. And I put the flashlight on, and I shine it in there, and there's the squirrel. It had died. Now, for you animal lovers, I am sorry. It is the only animal that I have ever killed, and I would encourage you after the service to speak to a hunter. Okay? (laughs) I'm just trying to get out of trouble. All right. Now, two weeks before this, My wife, before this happened, my wife said to me, there's something wrong with the flu system. So kids, this is how a real fireplace works, okay? You got this chain, and it kind of goes into this little notch, and that'll keep the doors down in the fireplace. But if you take it out of that notch, and you kind of let the chain up a little bit, it opens up doors in the fireplace. That allows the smoke to go out. So my wife said to me, something's wrong with that. When she said it, this is what happened. (laughs) See what I'm talking about? Yeah. In one ear, out the other. Now, why? The reason is I knew I couldn't fix it. And I knew I'd have to call somebody, and they'd have to fix it, and that would cost me money. And so what I did was I just tried to avoid it. Avoid the cost, at all cost. (laughs) And 
That we can't do when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. For we have been called to proclaim it clearly. I like what um, Billy Graham said. I lost the quote, just like that other piece of paper. I lost the quote, so this is pretty much what he said. He said, maybe one of the mistakes we've made is we haven't always clearly proclaimed the cost of following Jesus. Now, don't get caught up in that, because listen to what he says at the end as well. And the joy and the thrill and the excitement that comes from knowing him and walking in his ways. This is good news. Let's proclaim the cost of following Jesus and encourage people to give it all up for him. All right. Boy, we had so much fun the last service. We're not going to be able to repeat it. I mean, I, I was a fumbling, bumbling fool. We had prayed about that too, right? Help me not to be a fool. So anyway, we had a bad transition. I found out we're not going to sing a song after this. And so I get to talk to you a little bit about prayer. I want to encourage you. I've been here for two years, and I never went for prayer. And there were times when the Spirit of God was telling me, because of what I was going through in life, that I needed to go, and I didn't. Well, a few weeks ago, I went, because I needed prayer about something we all do. And all I can tell you is I was encouraged in faith. And then the next week, I ended up chatting with the person that prayed for me. The person talked that we talked a little bit more about the issue that I was dealing with. He recommended a book for me. And now I bought that book, and God's on the move. That's what he does. So you should go over and get prayer if you need it. If you're sensing God's spirit, do that. That's how we can love one another and be encouraged in faith. And let me end with this doxology, and that'll be it for today, and we can go home and watch some football. It says this, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Have a great week. Blessings.